Um, today we have an exciting uh, big round table. Like this is probably the biggest uh, table we've had, which is good. And we've also this is our first episode where we had a recurring uh, a guest. So uh, today we're joined by Dr. Butler, uh, Edward Butler. Um, you know who, who last time we had on to talk about polytheism. And just like the polytheistic gods, we have now expanded our pantheon into uh, three more people. Uh, who have come from a very polytheistic background, um, who have various traditions and practices. They are, uh, in some ways, I, I mean, I don't want to say reviving, but there, there might be a part of that, but there is a part of really re-envisioning, given the fact that there's been a real break, uh, a, a schism for you know a couple thousand years here of how we approach these the divinities. Um, and how we think about them, how we engage them. So without further ado, I want uh, uh, today's podcast is going to be on polytheism, uh, part do, I guess, um, but uh, uh, or part poly in this case. Um, and then we'll do uh, we'll have we'll introduce our guests. So um, we'll start with Dr. Butler since you were here before, if you want to do a, a quick introduction, and then we'll just go right down the round table. Uh, sure. Well, um, my name is Edward Butler. Um, I uh, have a, a doctorate in philosophy. Uh, in, I specialize in uh, the polytheistic Platonic tradition. Uh, and I am presently the director of the new Center for Global Polytheistic and Indigenous Traditions at Indic Academy, which is, uh, uh, I suppose you could call it a polytheistic think tank. Uh, and uh, we're uh, working on um, giving the gods a voice in the contemporary world, you could say. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Butler. Um, so after Dr. Butler, you know, Storm, if you want to introduce yourself, go ahead. Um, my name is Caitlin Stormbreaker. Uh, a lot of people have shortened my name to Storm, which is kind of what I've been growing more comfortable towards being called, so I'll just keep it at storm. Um, my path is very long and winding, and I've been practicing for a little over 10 years now. Um, I originally started in yoga and have used that as a foundation for my entire spiritual practice up until this point, 
um, and plan on continuing it that way. Um, I'm still with my original teacher, even though now it's all over Zoom because she lives very far away from me. Um, but she's very steepled deeply into the traditional yogic uh, teachings from the East and very far away from the Western teachings that we often find here in America. So it's very, uh, she's a wonderful teacher. Um, but I've also learned under Jim Two Snakes through the Kero tradition, but I'll let him speak on that. Um, and I've also learned a little bit from Sarenth about the Nordic traditions, but I've also done a lot of my own research through reading uh, Jackson Crawford's works, Dr. Jackson Crawford, um, reading various different uh, iterations of the Poetic Eddas and the Havamals, um, just the the surviving sources of uh, Nordic mythology and also seeking out the um, the important, uh, not important, the, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, oh gosh, brain totally just destroyed. Um, looking for the, the roots. Well, the valid sources, I mm, guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. The ones that have been, um, pointed at by experts saying, these are the ones you should follow if you want to learn about this path and these gods. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very short truncated version of sure. my path. <laughs> and, and, and you're currently doing the, the Celtic Nordic uh, path? Uh, the Nordic path mostly. Okay. I, okay. Uh, the, the Celtic path and I are, are kind of paralleled, I guess, in ways. Um, given some of my ancestral background, but I mostly follow the Norse gods. Okay. Um, all right. Excellent. So Jim, since you're, you're, she mentioned you, you go right ahead. Sure. Um, I'm Jim Stovall, known mostly online as Jim Two Snakes. I am a spiritual coach and mentor. I've been a polytheist for, I was just trying to think about that, doing the math in my head, 30 some odd years. Most of that has been devoted to following the Caro traditions. So the traditions of the indigenous people of the high mountains of the Andes, the descendants of the Inca, as it were. Uh, also some Norse and Slavic work in there. Um, until fairly recently, I would have actually called my path shamanic, however, that's a term I'm kind of migrating away from out of the respect for the cultures that that word actually comes from. So um, you could call me a Paco or a Curandero or a Pampa Masayuk at this point in time. But, uh, and yeah, do a lot of work in the communities. I've done teaching, workshops, pre presentations, uh, hosted fire ceremonies, just did a lot of things in the community. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and Saren, if you want to go ahead with your background. Sure. So I am a former Catholic uh, up until I was about the age of 18 officially. Uh, moved out and discovered paganism. Have been a pagan since 04. I'm a polytheist pagan. Uh, about 2006, 2007 is when I became heathen. Uh, at the time, I was very heavily involved in the comedic gods, uh, mostly as being a, new, a worshiper of Anpu or Anubis in Bosque. Uh, I came into heathenry, like I said, about 06, 07, somewhere in there. So I've been heathen for like 14, 15 years now. Um, a lot of my journey is uh, similar to what Storm was talking about in uh, kind of a balance between finding the roots of the practice in the, the various myths that are left to us and little pieces of folklore that still have bits and pieces of our gods and various uh, cultures that we're trying to revive and reconstruct. Uh, the 
interesting thing, I think, has been the move away from just God's worship in a lot of the, the pagan and polytheist communities that we're all involved in towards including ancestor and spirit worship. So I think that we're, we, we can over-focus on the gods in a sense uh, in, in the elimination of all the other categories of being that we have relationships with. So I, I'm not just a worshiper of the Nordic gods, but I also worship my ancestors, the ancestors of that revival and the spirits that are all around me, which is an interesting thing when you're talking about a white dude in North America. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, all your backgrounds are very interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll go into depth more because I, you come from different traditions, right? And that's, it's interesting to have, um, you know, we have people now following, you know, Norse traditions and Egyptian traditions and, you know, uh, the traditions of Peruvian and myself from the Indian Hindu traditions. And, you know, so these are very different traditions. We worship different gods. And I put that in quotations because I think like at some level, we are talking about energies and powers that, that coalesce at different planes of existence with, with, with people, right? You know, so you know, uh, you know, the ancient Indian saying, um, you know, "Ekam right? The truth is one; the wise called by many names, but these names have particularizations, right? You know, at least with, with within the Hindu tradition, like the, when you call a god and name, they 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 epitomize that god. Um, I mean, like that name is a power and reality into itself. I think in similar, I would imagine, and maybe Dr. Butler can correct me, that's very similar in, in much of the polytheistic other traditions, that the name of a god itself is a reality. Um, yeah. Well, certainly. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of different ideas about ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. um, and those can get in the way of appreciating that what these traditions have in common, I think, is, and you know, I mean, I've had to learn in some ways to be more diplomatic in the way that I sometimes characterize these things because, you know, you don't want to step on people's determinations about uh, an ultimate reality of one kind or another. But I think that what we can say that these traditions have in common is the tradition of establishing relationships with divinities um, and tending those relationships over long spans of time and being open to acquiring new relationships of this kind. And so I think that if we, if we characterize it in that way mm -hmm. and we focus on the element of cultivating these relationships, valuing these relationships, and placing a value on the openness uh, to the experience of these relationships, whether they be the ones that have been tended from time immemorial or whether they in fact be new ones for the individual or for the culture. Uh, that's how I think we stay on the safe side of uh, some otherwise very uh, uh, counterproductive uh, debates about uh, the nature of ultimate reality. Sure, sure. Uh, because um, one thing's for certain that in none of these cultures was a discourse about ultimate reality meant to get in the way of or displace these relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in India, the relationships which were established as far back as Vedic times 
those relationships are still there. They're still intact. Um, and they're still, in some sense, fundamental for the practice, um, regardless of the other relationships that have been added over time and the different ways of characterizing those relationships, which have emerged out of the reflection of Rishis and, uh, and other uh, uh, enlightened thinkers over the centuries. And we sure, could say sure. that about any of the cultures that we're talking about here. Absolutely. Um, um, Storm or, uh, I, I, I think Sarnth, you wanted to say something? I think that, that um, something that, that Dr. Butler said as something I'm gonna pick up on is that the nature of ultimate reality isn't what most polytheists are really concerned with at the end of the day. Because if what we're concerned with are relationships, then the theoretical models, while they're useful, they don't have a lot of import. Um, and that's not because they aren't foundational. It's just that they're not germane to how we carry on relationships. So whatever my ultimate conception of reality with regards to Odin is, uh, that's nice. But ultimately, it's about am I doing my part of obligation to Odin, is he doing his obligation to me? And are we carrying that relationship through? And the upper echelons of thought aren't really all that present because it's not germane to how we carry that relationship out in the everyday. Sure. Uh, and it's not me knocking theory and it's not me knocking ultimate reality itself as a concept, but it's just, it's so upper echelon thinking that it's, it doesn't occur. Because no, I'm, 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 I'm doing the prayers and I'm doing the offerings and I'm not thinking about the ultimate reality while I'm doing that. That actually gets in the way. No, and I, I, I find total, uh, you know, um, I vibe with that. Uh, but, you know, within the Indian tradition, the problem I think tends to be sometimes is the focus ends up being this concept of, you know, salvation, moksha, whatever you want to call it. Oh, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of the relationship with the deity growing, it's about how do I get out of the cycle? And it's, it's, so it leads to having these more deeper theorizations where that theory matters. But I, I think this is where, I mean, what we're talking about, like what, you're, what you mentioned right now is much more like a, like a bhakti kind of element, like a devotional relationship, right? Where the, the relationship is at the core, the crux of everything. And, and there, I think like we, we probably all would. And in bhakti, the, yeah. the relationship is salvific. That's right. That's right. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's correct. So, um, you know, I want to jump into this some more, but I want to get a couple of the hard, hard hitting questions out, out of the way first. So one of the things I, you know, it strikes me is, you know, um, within the polytheist movement across the globe, what, we're, what I'm starting to see is a lot of, you know, much more of, I would say, you know, white people, you know, going back to their roots in some sense, or going back to traditions that were, were broken from them, you know, um, as opposed to what I see is a lot other places. And, and this is not, this is not saying I'm correct here. It's just my observation is much more of what we would consider like brown, um, the people of color are flocking more towards, you know, the, the monotheistic religions in some sense. And I'm sure there's global dynamics at play, politics at play here. But why, why would you think that you find much more of, you know, people, white, Caucasian, whatever you want to call it, or from a European background trying to find these connections in the polytheistic world, what is driving them towards that? It, 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 outside of like <laughs> any truly spiritual, like what I'm saying is like, you know, right. we can say there's a calling to us from, from the deities, which is like spiritual element, but like what else is pushing us towards? My, my snarky answer would be that 
our society is reflective of monotheism and we found both our society and monotheism to be empty. And can you explain that on a little more? Like, you know, Sure, uh, that the, the, our society is very reflective on the accumulation of wealth and that is a reflection of what monotheism theism has become. The, the roots of monotheism were not so concerned with the acquiring of, of wealth dynamics and, and the, the class and caste system that we find ourselves under now, where people that are toiling under lives that have no meaning. And so we're looking for meaning and that is not found very well in a monotheism that's predominant in the Western culture, which is so focused on what comes next. People wanna know about the now. Why are we so unhappy right now? How can we connect right now? Where are our roots at right now? Sure. I mean, I, 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 I would partially, I would agree there because I do think there is this like ossification of our society, which is, I mean, in the West, it's the ossification of this glitz, glamour, uh, appearance, superficiality that, you know, is it's becoming global, sadly, right? You know, we're seeing this happen much more in what we'd call developing countries or third world countries, whatever you want to call them. Um, in that as they are moving towards wealth and economic gain, you're finding this kind of this veneer passing over that's that's destroying traditions and destroying cultures. Um, but well, let me yeah. let me reverse engineer it to a degree. Like so we're seeing a lot in the job market mm -hmm. that people want jobs that are part of their life but do not dominate their life. They want jobs and careers where there is satisfaction, where you feel like you're having a greater contribution to the world and you feel like like your work is part of your lifestyle. It's not something that's demanded and dictated to you. And you're seeing that reflected in religion as well, because especially increasingly amongst the youth, you don't want to go to a church and sit in a pew and be told what to do. You want to be able to have the freedom to explore that spirituality yourself. Sure, sure. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that when a lot of us as our families came to America all those years ago, we were told that we have to let go of our cultural differences. We had to let go of our, our customs, our traditions, our spirituality. We had to either hide it or completely dispose of it and get rid of it and become what an American is. But I don't even think they knew what American was then, and we still don't now. I mean, what has taken that empty space within us is consumerism, to do nothing but consume everything around us and hoard these things to us to fill that empty, vacant hole of where tradition and culture used to be. And so now that we've figured out, you know, several hundred years later, oh, things don't matter what really matters is connection and connection to my family, my roots and my culture and who I was. And I think a lot of um, white folks are waking up and realizing our lives are meaningless. We mm. have no idea of why we're doing what we're doing in the face of capitalism that has done nothing but take from us. It has given us very little. It's given us enough to feel wanted and welcome within our country, but even then that's not culture, it, it's empty consumerism. And so I think a lot of people are trying to return to those roots and trying to remember 
who we are in a spiritual sense within our, not just our bodies, but our, our minds and our hearts and our souls are just yearning to have something more, to have something to share with the generations that come beyond us. And because a lot of, um, a lot of the paths now, um, even talking about Norse mythology, there are, uh, there are mythologies out there on paper. We do have sources, but we don't have as much as people think. Once you mm -hmm. start digging into that and reading the Havamal and reading the, the Voluspa and reading the Lokasana and all these things, there are certain things in there that they talk about that we have no frame of reference to because there's nothing else written down. Right, it, it, it's, so, it's a amalgam of different traditions and stories from that from the culture, right? So you're not given mm -hmm. in narrative form where they're probably, you know, sung narratively to the people and, and the cultures and the communities that they're part of, but they just captured it in writing. So we have snippets of it, right? So- Right. And a lot of those stories came were spread all across the country from varying different tribes and families that came forward and shared those. So we don't even know if this story of Thor and this story of Thor are actually connected right. at all. You know, it, this is this family's story and this is this family's story. But even then, we don't know those families. <laughs> That's right. We don't know anything about them. We don't know the lands they lived in. We don't know what their their uh, struggles were. We don't know what tribes they warred with, you know. So we don't know how in-depth that goes. And so as as a heathen myself, I, I personally work with Freya. And what she's having me do is finding the magic in the world around me and re-realizing what Sather and magic and uh, spirituality means to me in the world around me in the land that I'm on right now, while also being respectful of the spirits that are already here. Very well said. I appreciate that. Um, so, I mean, a part of this is, you know, part of this, the question also touches upon what we're, you know, I would say, many people are, 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 are saying is about cultural appropriation and things of that nature, right? How, how, do, how do you guys kind of, you know, walk that thread in terms of being um, fully devotional, connected to the tradition, at the same point, not getting to a point of culturally appropriating? And I, I'm, I, I don't mean to be facetious about this, because I do think it's an important question that, that, that's being talked about amongst people. Like, you know, Jim, as you, you practice the traditions of the people of the Andes, you know, how is it that you remain true to them without veering into what's happening with what Storm talks about with modern Western yoga, where they appropriate half the terms and concepts, right? So how do we, so how do you guys kind of, uh, you know, thread that needle? Um, well, I walk the line by just being really upfront with what I am and I'm not. Like I, I will tell people that the traditions that I that I that I use and the teachings I've been taught come from the Andes, but that I'm not Peruvian in any way, shape, or form. And if someone from one of those cultures wants to correct me or do something differently, I acquiesce to their authority on the issue. And I'm very clear about the fact that my practice is germinated from theirs, but it is practiced on my land where I live now. The mountains are very different from the Great Lakes region. And so that creates a change in those traditions. And I've also found that for the Caro, at least, 
And I think probably you'd see this a lot more in older societies, especially agricultural ones. There's a lot of fluidity and give to what works. There's a practicality there. So the example with the caro is, um, you know, obviously when in Inca times, they were very polytheist, but now most of the Carol would consider themselves Roman Catholic. However, they're still going to be talking about a lot of the old gods and the mountains that they interact in with that because Catholicism becomes kind of like a veneer. It's an overarching way of relating to the universe. Uh, since so many Westerners have started to come and learn their traditions, you know, that tradition has specific names for energy centers. But once they learned that chakras were the term that the westerners use they use it a lot as well so it's it's a i think a lot of older cultures agricultural hunter gatherer cultures were a lot more adaptable and i think that's why we see the gods migrating as well because it's like this works this feels right and it, you know the difference between appropriation and and a, a shared gnosis is really a lot of respect mm -hmm. i think yeah, I mean, my only comment to that is, you know, like, I don't think a person's skin color determines whether they're authentic or not. Um, it's the traditions that one in, in hears, right? Like how you sh show respect to that tradition, how you show respect to those ideas um, um, and, you know, source them, right? You know, like, you know, if, you, if, if you're bringing a concept out that belongs to a certain tradition, then you, you explain it. And then ultimately, like, yeah, the, the, you know, uh, people that live that tradition for generations or even, you know, their own lifetime might have a little more nuance or uh, I use authenticity only insofar as to say that maybe they have a little more understanding of things because, you know, you're taught from a little baby, right? To, uh, like certain ideas, like, you know, you just are right, you know, so there's, there's no way I could yeah. teach them about the mountain traditions, but That's there's right. no way they could actually teach me about my interaction with the Great Lakes, we'd have to look at where those things overlap. And I think also respect, um, it falls in there too, is, is, is an honoring, like, yeah, I spend a good chunk of my income making regular donations to groups that help the Caro in those high mountains. So there's a reciprocity between the two of us. Sure. And, and, and how about you guys? How do you guys deal with it? Um, my, my main avenue is through sort of educating people that I run into when it comes to appropriation, like when it comes to uh, especially yoga, because if uh, you're not fully a fully trained yoga teacher, um, as a teacher, you can actually injure your students, right. you know, so it's very important to know exactly what you're doing and know that different bodies respond differently. And, um, but I also encourage people to look a little deeper into those traditions because there's such a deeper fulfillment within them that they're not actually getting from the teacher that they have. And if I do run into um, say information that I don't know, usually I send them to either my teacher or another viable source. And I say, go talk to them, you know, help them support them because they, this is their life path. This is what they've been sure. doing. Beth has been, uh, training for uh, 20 plus years now and she even studied at the ashram she teaches at the ashram now um, once or twice a year and so I know she knows her stuff um, but outside of that if I am if I have interest in approaching a tradition that is outside of my own I find somebody within that tradition 
who is um, a figurehead or somebody who is of an authority within that tradition. And I, I simply ask, you know, what do I need to do in order to be able to walk this path? What do you need from me in order for this to be a reciprocal relationship that we can have? Um, Just because I know um, certain like uh, African traditions may not want a white woman or a white male walking into their traditions just given because of just because of the wounds of the past. Mm -hmm. And if they say, I'm sorry, this is a closed religion, I say, no harm, no foul. Thank you so much for the time that you have given me, but I continue to support them. Right. either through sharing their stuff or speaking with my voice, what they said to me saying, they said it was a closed tradition, please do not pursue this, um, that kind of stuff, you know, using my voice, my privilege to stand up for them in a way that they deem as appropriate, because I can't say for them what is appropriate. Literally, right. all I can do is ask, and then offer sources that <sighs> are important and know what they're talking and have been vetted. Sure. I mean, that's great. That's great. And how about you, uh, Inosan? Uh, how do you? So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of a different tack. Sure. Um, so these both have been talking excellent examples about how how you properly ally with the people. And the way that I'm gonna approach this is kind of uh, how how do I respect the people and respect the spirits? So on the land that I live, I live on land that used to be lived on by various Anishinaabe people, including the Potawatomi and the Ojibwa. And so I come from a tradition that honors the land in part by pouring out alcohol on the ground. Um, there are certain native spirits that are going to be incredibly pissed if you do that for good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, alcohol has been seen as a poison by a lot of these tribes. Uh, so how do I thread that needle of walking my path while being respectful? Well, there's some places I will never bring alcohol. Yeah. If I know this place is a burial ground, you don't bring alcohol. You bring tobacco. You bring something that is relevant to the spirits of that area. Um, you know, likewise, I would not expect uh, traditional native offerings to be made to my gods because they're my gods, and the offerings you give should be appropriate unto them. Likewise, I might not give the same offerings to the land spirits as I give to my gods, as I give to the Kemetic gods, for instance, um, because uh, I might give an offering of, say, cow to Othin, but I'm not going to set that down in front of Ganesh and accept that to be acceptable. Yeah, it's yeah. just not not the done thing. Uh, <laughs> if, I want, if what I'm trying to gain is a good relationship with the gods, ancestors, and spirits, sure, I have to treat them as individual beings. And at least as a white person in America, that is reified through the relationships that I've been lucky enough to have with Native people who say, this is an appropriate offering. This is what you do. This is how you give it. This is the right way to do things. And even if we accept that the gods, ancestors, and spirits can call whom they will and what they will uh, to them, that's great. But that doesn't remove these very human relationships that these other people carry and they're older than what I ever will be. Uh, My ancestors are only recently buried on this land. We are guests here and I need to act appropriately. Um, I think this is actually a really useful way for white people in America, especially those who are thinking about uh, converting out of a monotheistic religion to think about themselves as to think of themselves as a diaspora because you are disconnected from your roots. You can't look around and find many of your your relatives' graves. Uh, And if you can, there are deep wounds that your ancestors probably incurred just by being here. Uh, 
And whether or not you carry guilt or shame for that is beside the point. The point is, is that you need to reckon that with the land and with the gods of this place and with the ancestors that live here and lived here before you. Uh, and that's, you know, regardless of where your ancestors ended up. Um, so I think that through our human relations, we can come closer to the gods, ancestors, and spirits by engaging in the right relationship. And that right relationship, because these are all beings, individualized beings that we're talking about, whether it's a single blade of grass or the great cosmos itself, your relationship with that being, yes, it's individual, but it's also something that you have to work through with your identity where you are in this flesh and blood meat suit. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, Dr. Butler, you have any thoughts? Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, it's, it's just, it's just really interesting to listen to everyone's ways of wrestling with these questions. And I mean, I think that the important thing to recognize is that we shouldn't expect to have some kind of final perfect answer to these questions. I think that the thing that makes polytheisms fundamentally different than monotheism is that, you know, there's, there's, there's no element of, there's no element of being that we leave out of consideration. And so that includes history as well. You know, there's not going to be some kind of a redemption at the end of the day, which is going to just wipe everything clean and make everything tidy and make it so that, uh, that, that, that there are no longer uncomfortable histories mm -hmm. to be negotiated. And I think that what people in uh, what I call revivalist polytheisms, you know, uh, traditions that are being revived after having been sundered. What I think that they can contribute most valuably to people in longstanding continuous traditions is the work that we can do behind that wave, so to speak, you know, um, coming from places where you know, that, that, that wave of destruction and cultural annihilation happened centuries ago. What we can work on behind the lines is creating, uh, creating more sustainable structures of reality that can relieve some of the pressure which is still being exerted right now on those traditions, many of which are, as we speak, still very much on the front lines of the same kind of forces, the same kinds of pressures that they were under centuries ago. You know, that hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's still today's reality in Amazonia, for instance. That's still today's reality, you know, 
even in uh, uh, places where we don't think of them as being on the front edge of uh, a colonialism anymore, but there are colonial mindsets which are still very powerful and very operative. And what we can do, I think, in the West is that we can work on undermining those pressures from the inside and changing the way in which our culture understands and talks about those cultures and relieve some of that pressure, you know, because I think that um, in a lot of ways, there's still, uh, there's still a weight upon these traditions, you know, and you see that in the pressure, for instance, to fit their relationships with their gods and spirits into this cosmogony that weighs down on it from above uh, and that has imposed, for instance, a Catholic cosmogony on top of their entire pre-existing worldview, which was comprehensive in itself. It wasn't lacking anything, you know. And so when colonizers came in and imposed their God, imposed their worldview, it had this effect of pressing those indigenous worldviews down to occupy its lower reaches, you know. And people have adapted to that. People have survived, you know, and it's gonna be their choice, of course, whether to continue with that kind of, that, that kind of worldview or not. I mean, of course, now they're under even further pressures because I mean, what we see for instance in many places is that all right, well, previously there was a framework of uh, so-called folk Catholicism, which at least created some vehicle within which these relationships could continue, even if, you know, they were pushed to the margins in certain ways or, you know, pressed down into certain kinds of narrower and more practical relationships, for instance. But now they're under pressure from an evangelical Christianity, which wants to strip that worldview even more and that demands even more. And in effect, will clear cut those, you know, what exists of those worldviews entirely. And so what we can do, I think from where we are to whatever degree is to do what we can to pull back on those pressures. And that's why, you know, my work as an intellectual has been on just trying to remove the opprobrium, the stigma from the very notion of polytheism. Mm -hmm. Because I think that until some of that stigma is lifted, you know, these pressures are going to continue. And so let's do what we can to remove those pressures and then people do what they like, you know? 
you know, and, 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 and be whatever they want to be. But let's get our thumb off the scale because it's very much, I think, still there. Sure, absolutely. I mean, we see that in, you know, in modern media too, right? With depictions of the Norse gods or the Greek gods or Egyptian gods in movies and TVs and video games, you know, um, how, how they're depicted differently than when we have conversations about the monotheistic gods and they're rarely ever depicted, they're rarely ever shown. And even if they're depicted, they're shown to have a, a great long-term plan or idea. Well, these these other gods are petty and little and small, right? So it's uh, I, I, there is that stigma that's still being like subtly thrown into, into everyone's view, worldview. And, and the only time we pick up on it is like when you're part of these traditions, right? You know, like if you look at how you think about Thor in Marvel comics, how vitally different he is from the stories. Uh, and, and I know the word mythos in Greek is different, but like when we use mythology, even the term mythology in modern sense is like these false narratives, these false stories, um, I, you know, these, so I, I would just use the stories of, of Thor, any of these deities, you know, their stories have bigger impacts, like when they're when you read in the poetic Eda or the prose Eda or whatever it is. It's there's purpose to this, right? There's there's a there's a a, a large it's a larger and more subtle like subtext that's playing a, a play about the nature of humanity, nature of the world that we don't get any 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 grasp of today. And you know, and and that's why I think like you know what I want to discuss next is actually this is when you guys started your traditions and started practicing your traditions, where would you go for sources? What sources would you use? How would you learn about, you know, what to practice and how not to practice and, mm -hmm. and how to, how to connect to the gods? I mean, that, at least for someone like me, it's easy, right? I go to, I go to a tradition that's existed. I, tell me what to do. How do I do it? How do I engage? What book should I read? You know, and, and I get it. How do you guys have to deal with that, right? Because so much of your books are, I mean, if you had books, right? These might be oral traditions that didn't have books, but right. you had these, these traditions that had lived on, they were passed on from, from family to family, person to person, and suddenly they're gone. How is it that you find how to authentically live? Because because even within these traditions of praxis, what you do as part of your prayer is very important. It's not just you just pray, you have to do certain things. The ritualization is very important too, right? There has a purpose to it. So how do you how do you learn about that? I want to really quick pick up on something you just mentioned with regards to media, because this yeah. is something I've been noodling on for a while. So instead of worrying about how petty our gods are portrayed, let's reverse the script. How horrible is it that the monotheist God has sat through the whole of history let's say the last hundred years, mass slaughter of native people, mass slaughter of the Jews in the Holocaust, queer people in the Holocaust. How horrible is it that he has a plan and it involves all of these people being exterminated systematically, sitting on his ass while all this happens. Meanwhile, our gods are doing what they can, where they can, how they can, when they are directly involved in the world, whereas he is above it. What a horrible narrative when we actually think about it. When you actually sit with the horror of a God that is so removed from your human suffering that he cannot relate. I want my gods to be petty because they understand what fucking pain is. Sorry, I just, I have been, like, this is a, a through line in our media that is poison. 
because it it denies the agency of God in that particular media's framework, unless and until in in the case of a show like Supernatural, where God is actually the enemy. Um, you know, there I mean, are just on that few... point. You know, I think this this goes to the concept of the Odyssey, right? You know, ultimately mm. the, the I think Dr. Butler and I spoke about the last time. It's much harder for monotheistic uh, visions of God or versions of God to deal with the problem of the Odyssey, right? Yeah. Because it's ill-equipped. Yeah, it's very ill-equipped, right? So, it, it, <clears throat> so in that sense, it doesn't make sense, right? You know, but if if your fundamental nature is that, or the idea is the world was created perfect by a perfect God, then how does this happen? It doesn't doesn't work, right? But if you're saying that the world is a composite of divinity in every way, shape, and form that's playing with each other, interacting with each other, that suffering occurs, it's it's a part of part and parcel of existence then we have a very different viewpoint, right? In the like creation myths that we, that we, again, sorry about the word myths, but these stories no, are about the interplay between, about these, the, the forces of suffering and pain with the forces of, of, I don't want to say goodness, it's not goodness, but like beatitude and bliss and love and all, but they're, they're not opposed to each other. They're just interplaying with each other. And I think when, right. when we have that sense, we have a very different engagement with the world than we do with, there's evil out there and, and, and their God has to stop it. I don't, so yeah. Well, this ties into your question that you just posed because the sources that I used to run into as a heathen, a lot of times would cast Loki as the devil, basically. Uh, and this is an issue that, that it starts in media and then it, it rolls into a lot of avenues where you have to be like really careful about your, your, your sourcing because is this particular author who's written a book on how to be a heathen engaged in an understanding where the giants are all evil, which historically isn't accurate. And they're uh, not even giants. They're Jotun, right? They're just, well, yeah, the anti-gods. It's, it's one way of saying yeah. it. Well, no, they're not anti-gods. Well, Actually, I just, I use that in, in a very loose sense. So they're related, but they're, they're opposites I, in some sense, yeah. They are not. And here's okay. why. Because like the Aesir, the Jotnar are part of the foundation of creation. Yeah. Fire, air, earth, water, all the primordial beings are Jotun. So they are not anti-gods. They're actually the foundation of creation. What's different with the Aesir and the Vanir is they take a lot of similar elements, such as Thor. Thor is literally born from Othin and the earth. Yeah. Yorth. Yorth is a Jotun. Othin is also Jotun. The only difference that he has between himself and other Jotnar is that he is uh, basically one that separated off and became his own tribal head. Uh, huh. what, what, di what difference is there between these gods is that they're from different tribes. What you're looking at is a tribal narrative, not really much in the way of substance. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't mean substance. I just meant like there are different tribes. Again, it's like Asuras and, and Devas are basically the same people, just different groups. Just, yeah, and, yeah, and they interplay with each other. They're yeah. not always in opposition. So yeah, saying yeah, right. the, the Jotnar are anti-gods is, is unfortunately a line that we have to excise no, and I apologize from our own. That. No, no, no. I, it's, a, it's a teaching moment because yeah. we have to excise it from our own religion because that's the popular narrative. Even in some of the books that I have on my shelf, uh, books for kids, there's some types where I have to actually, as I'm telling the story to my kids, edit the book <laughs> because it provides this uh, accessibility for a kid, but it actually teaches wrong about our gods. But the um, scholars also pro uh, uh, wrongly oh, yeah, do yes. this too, right? They, they'll Absolutely. call them anti-gods, 
like that or call them like giants or even though they know better right from reading the text but, yeah, yeah and giant works as a term okay but it's it's it it works uh, but the it denies the depth of what they are huh. because uh for instance yorth being the the term where the term earth comes from yeah it if you're just uh looking at her as as the uh strict definition of what Jotunar means. It means devourer or eater. Uh, if you're just looking at the earth as an eater, of course, consumerism makes total sense within that reified concept sure. into our modern time. But that's not what she does. That's not what she does mythologically. It's not what she does from our relationship with her. She is constantly generating new life if we live in right relationship with her. So I've talked a lot. I'll <laughs> let some other folks talk. But I just, it, it ties in so much because it can really infect how we parse what a good source versus a bad source is. There, it, it's like a lot of things, they are interconnected. So we'll come back to that. But so let's start with uh, Caitlin here. Um, if you wanna talk about like how you, you know, the, the question, let me rephrase the question is when you started doing the journey, how did you find the way to practice your, the tradition you're practicing now? How did you find the sources? What did you find and how did you like navigate figuring out if this is the right way to do a particular practice not do a particular practice and all that stuff so yeah um well honestly it really started with uh my yoga teacher um she was very intuitive and kind and very encouraging to seek out one's own truth in their own path and i i use the term truth with the capital t um you know, there are many different truths for many different people. Like what's true for me may not be true for you exactly. And what's sure. true for Jim may not be true for Sarah. But um, she, when I asked her, uh, because I wanted to study Buddhism and understand it a little more and more yogic philosophies, she pointed me to several different sources and said, read them and see what works for you. These are the ones that I know that are, are the most accurate to the Eastern philosophy of uh -huh. yoga. Um, these ones you should look out for. And part of the reason why I knew to be able to trust her was because she gave me her background. You know, she was very open and communicative with where she came from and how she got to be where she was at at the time. And where I grew up, we were exceptionally lucky to have her show up in our town as a yoga teacher because I grew up in a very small town and to have somebody with a background like her just randomly show up in the town and start offering $5 classes at a local dance studio, you know, you're kind of like, holy crap. Okay. This is kind of cool. And then what she kind of infused in her yogic teachings were the uh, the various limbs, the niyamas and the yamas, and started using all these big words that none of us knew what they were, but she would use the actual names and terms for the poses instead of saying corpse pose, she would say savasana, and instead of uh, crow pose, I can't remember the name of that one because I'm not a yoga teacher, but you know, she, she lived her path. You know, she knew everything about it. And if she didn't, she would say, let me get back to you. Mm -hmm. Give me 24 to 48 hours and I will find you an answer or I will find you the door to the answer. And then that, I mean, that really kicked open my proverbial spiritual door because I grew up in a non-religious household. And so in a way I was sort of lucky, but also I, I kind of feel like 
I showed up almost directionless in the spiritual path because I didn't have the basis understanding of like a Catholic background. You know, I didn't understand ritual. I didn't understand song or prayer or why you did certain things. And so I kind of had to seek people out. And then I heard about this little shop in Jackson called the wandering owl that unfortunately is no longer there. And then I just showed up every Saturday and asked every single spiritual practitioner that walked through the door, every single question I possibly ever had. And then uh, Jim actually looked at me one day and said, uh, so this is my path. If you're interested, I would like to be your teacher. Um, and at this point I had gotten to know Jim very, very well. And I knew that like, I think a lot of it is finding the right individual, the right teacher, because the right teacher will say, this is my path. Okay. This is what I do. It is not necessarily correct for you, but there are certain things that I can teach you that will help you along your path. You know, this is my path. That's your path. Let me help you walk it, but make sure you understand that is your path there. Right. And and then another thing about uh, vetting sources and stuff that that can get very sticky sometimes and a lot of it boils down to language and what they utilize to present their information with you know it, it really boils down for me at least for vocabulary there are certain like red flag trigger words that you look for um and a lot of it is you know neo-nazi rhetoric and mm -hmm. fascist BS and all that kind of stuff. And, but you have to know what you're looking for. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the newbies into the Norse mythology often get pulled into these groups. And then once they're in a little deep, they're like, whoa, this is like real bad. I got to back up, hang on a second. And then people like uh, myself and Saranth and Jim and several people within our community will kind of like pull them back and be like, okay, let's, let's help you. But I, I think for me, a lot of it was instead of people telling me, you have to walk your path specifically this way, they would ask me the question, well, what do you want from your path? Mm -hmm. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want to find? What's broken that needs healed? And so I would, I would kind of follow those rhetorics instead of somebody telling me, you have to follow this path exactly this way in order for you to reach enlightenment. And once you hit enlightenment, you're going to be there. And it's like, no, you're not. Sorry. Yeah. Enlightenment it, is one of those uh, fair games where you hit the hammer against the bell and the bell goes up and dings. And it comes that back ding down. is enlightenment and you go right back down <laughs> to the bottom, you know? That's and right. that was one of the first things that Beth taught me. And she always told me, you know, and I've said this hundreds and hundreds of times, I am so lucky to have had her as my first spiritual teacher, but like she kind of taught me. I mean, she, like I said, she kicked my proverbial door open and said, these are things to look out for. You know, good luck, I'm here if you need me, but it's time for you to go now. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things um, I, I do find very different from, you know, from my own, you know, the, I, I, we use the term Hindu, but it's a bunch of different, hundreds of different, you know, uh, practices and beliefs, right? So it's its its own world and ecosystem um, that when you go to go talk to, you know, uh, a guru or proper acharya or whatever, um, in, in a teach, teacher, let's use that word, they'll, if they're belonging to a proper tradition, they'll, they'll usually say something like, you know, what is it you're looking for? 
you won't find it here. You can go find it somewhere else. I'm not the right person. There's somewhere else you can go. I'm not the right, you're not in the right place. We're not in there. So it's, it's a very much like, again, it's a relational thing. Like it, it, it's, you know, part of this is, is about the idea that for each person based upon their time, place, situation, mental well-being, whatever it is, there's a different path. It, you can't just go say hundred Hail Marys and you'll be fine, right? No, that does, that's not going to work. It, it, it's, it each, I mean, it would be great if that is how that yeah, works, it, but it, you but, know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's very much like, you know, there's different practices and different, I wouldn't say cures, but different uh, uh, health plans for, uh, you know, our, our spiritual health plans, mental health plans, whatever you want to say, for each person based upon their their situation and whatever it is. So I do appreciate that, that, you know, Storm, that you brought it up, that, um, you know, that you're finding people that are, you know, guiding you, okay, I'm, maybe I'm not the right person, but here's a bunch of books here find something that works for you, you know, because we're naturally drawn to things, right? And and why shouldn't those the, the, those attractions of certain things be what keeps us there, right? Instead of saying, no, you can't go there, that, you know, that might be satanic, that might be like very horrible. No, it's it's, it's very different, you know, the, so I, I do appreciate that. But, you know, I, I guess the, the, the deeper question here is, so now that you're doing the, the practice in the Norse, in the Norse tradition, how do you like, is there any work or sources that tell you how to practice? Or is it something that, and how are you figuring that out? Because I, I feel like, you know, we can go to the Prozida, the Puerakita, and, and, and all the other texts that talk about the, the various deities and their and the stories and the ideas behind them. But what does it lead to in terms of practice? Like, how does it, how do you engage with that in your everyday life? And how do you know if you're doing right by the gods? Yeah, if you're if you're doing the work correctly, yeah. um, and Sarens, please feel free to uh, correct me at any given moment. But this is this is my understanding of it through um, my various different wanderings through the the academics, the the spiritual workers who walk the Norse path, um, and somewhere in between, you know, because there are spirit workers who are academics that yeah. you know walk both paths, and a lot of what we have as sources is very limited mm -hmm. um, in information and actually, you know, they have, well, we have songs for healing and we have the songs for the runes and we have songs that'll uh, make you fearsome, uh, fearsome in battle. And uh, we have songs for this and we have songs for that, but they never actually tell you what those songs are. They just say, we have songs for these and huh. I know songs for these, but you don't get written instructions for them. So a lot of the, the, the books that we have now from various different uh, practitioners, uh, a lot of it is uh, unverified personal gnosis or UPG. Um, and a lot of that you have to kind of take with a grain of salt and a little bit of caution. And I'm, I'm not a teacher you know, and I, I don't feel comfortable putting myself in that position just because I don't feel like that's my path. So I would never actually walk the path of a teacher for the Norse mythology and not because I don't have the sources for it, but because that's just not who I am. Um, so a lot of it for myself is reading the Havamal and reading the, the Prosetta and the Poetiketa and all that stuff and sort of meditating or contemplating is the word I wanted, uh, contemplating the teachings within there and figuring out how it fits within my life 
and how I can take the teachings that I have gotten from Jim and that I've gotten from Beth and how can I make all of these things kind of fit together within my personal understanding of the world around me? Mm-hmm. How do I interface with uh, the spirits outside my door versus the spirits that I've invited inside. You know, how do I view my life through these religions, through these teachings? You know, because the Havamal is a very good um, set of uh, poems and stanzas that kind of teach you how to be a person mm-hmm. and how to interact with other people. You know, there are basic guidelines like if a wanderer shows up to your door, allow him inside, feed him, and give him a place to sleep. But don't give him everything you have, you know, don't let him overstay his welcome sort of thing, you know, so there are things in there like that. But, you know, we don't have detailed descriptions of rituals and how to tend for the dead and how to take care of burial mounds and how to build a ship, you know, they had to dig up ships from the ground in order to figure out how they built long ships to make it all the way across to America. You know, and then they had to recreate those later because even in the Nordic countries, a lot of that stuff was lost even amongst the families because Christianity showed up on their doorstep as well. Right, um, I'm sure there's there so much a- more there, like initiation rites and rites of 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 uh, of birth. Like, like you know, mm-hmm. there must have been so much there that just have been lost. Um, yeah, and and and, so- and and it could feel like a deep scar, right? It's like a scar that lingers there because. What is it that you end up having to, if this is your tradition and this is your path, what is it that you have to pass on to the children outside of, you know, these, you know, and the story and these stories and these texts are so important, but they're, but it, like, it's they're different. Sort from of having, empty. It's not yeah. that they're empty. They're, they're just, they're, they're there, but it's, it's not full. It's like, you right. know, it's like, it's like a human being with only like, like two limbs and not the rest of their limbs, right? Or, or senses. <laughs> yeah, right? and they also, they also haven't had the opportunity to grow and to adapt in the way that they would have. That's right. And right. in the way yeah. that, you know, other religions have been able to. And so it's easy for us to fall into the trap of looking at texts like that. And, you know, I mean, they're just for us these static artifacts and yet you know any text that was part of a living and continuous tradition would uh at a minimum it would accumulate this these layers of interpretation and commentary they would be constantly negotiated within a a tradition of living people who were negotiating circumstances in their lives, adapting the religion to it, and, you know, uh, making the kinds of of interventions that were needed, and also just constantly recontextualizing, you know, and so we have to do for ourselves that kind of work of understanding what role these texts, given the kind of isolation that we encounter them in, the kind of role that they can have, you know? And so, I mean, I think you'll find a similar, you'll hear a similar story from most revivalist polytheists that is gonna involve a complex process of negotiation between texts 
um, and texts of a couple of different kinds too. I mean, ancient texts and also, you know, modern texts written for the, you know, for the explicitly mm -hmm. neo-pagan community, you know, with the kinds of, you know, uh, uh, issues that they can have. Um, relationships with the gods that we have ourselves, you know, and, and what we learn in that relationship because to some extent the gods teach us the work. Right. Um, and also what you'll almost always hear is some kind of recourse to living integral traditions, whether it's directly by people seeking training, you know, which a lot of people in this community do, they'll seek training from, uh, from the Hindu tradition They'll seek training from the African diaspora traditions. Um, they, they'll seek training really from wherever they can find uh, a, a, an integral tradition that that they can engage with. Um, or sometimes, uh, Doctor yeah. Butler, I was going to ask. I I kind of sometimes make the comparison that with these large gaps. Um, we don't know, and I think a lot of this has to do with the, it's how the polytheist community connects with some of these appropriation factors as well, is that without a living tradition, a lot of times we are like youths who are modeling our behavior after older generations. So in the case of polytheists, we're modeling our behavior versus African traditional religions or versus Native American traditions, because we're really trying to relearn missing steps by modeling. Yeah, I mean, we have to learn just how to just how to even be in the posture, so to speak, of devotion. And I mean, I know, you know, that that for me, you know, when I was first, uh, you know, um, experiencing the gods in my life, you know, I looked to the examples around me. And, you know, the kinds of examples that I saw were, you know, from the African diaspora traditions, from the Afro-Latina traditions, you know, um, from Chinese popular religion, from Hinduism, these were the examples that I could see in my community because I was living in New York City. And so, I mean, I could see these things. And so, you know, I mean, you just, even if you're not engaging with these traditions any more than just as a spectator, this is how you learn things, just the most basic things. Like, you know, you get a statue or some, other image and make offerings to it, you know, and establish a relationship that way, you know, and you find that that opens certain doors and a relationship begins to flow and you start to learn more from that. And, you know, as that process is ongoing, then you're also pulling in texts, you know, you're pulling in other kinds of influences you're just working it out. And so I think that, you know, the relationship with living integral traditions, you know, I mean, it can be a, a question of actually going and seeking out 
training in those traditions just in order to learn how to even have a tradition. Or it can just be a question of example. You know, that I mean, you know, you see, oh, you know, these people have a temple, they have images of their gods, they, you know, they, they, they come and they do things. They have household shrines, they do things at them, they bring their problems to their gods, you, you see. And so, I mean, uh, in many ways, it's, it's just being in the position of having this kind of dialogue in your life. Yeah, I would agree with that. Oh, sorry, Sarah. I, I was just no, going to throw ahead, in there brother. that, yeah, I think that, uh, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And that's kind of how I mean with how it ties into appropriation. Because um, I, for example, if I didn't have, if I was doing a Norse sort of model and I didn't have a good way of conceptualizing ancestor worship, I might go to an African traditional system, but I might tell them right up front, be very upfront. No, I'm not trying to imitate or steal your system, but I need you to teach me this element that I'm missing. And I think probably a lot of cultures and practitioners are going to be much more open to that kind of conversation. Yeah. Well, where it becomes an exchange or a respectful dialogue versus, hi, uh, that, your shit looks really cool. Yoink. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, that's part of why my ancestor practice looks the way it does, because I have known some folks in the African traditional religions, and they've had impact on my ancestor cultus. But I have also had impact from Native people in my life who I love very much, and they've had an impact on how my ancestor cultus looks too. Uh, in part because I'm not just honoring my own, for instance, grandfathers and grandmothers, I'm also honoring the grandfathers and grandmothers in the land. So the ancestor practice takes on this very interesting flavor, I guess you'd call it, of Midwest uh, heathenry. And I think that's important for everybody to recognize that, that your regional flavor is just that. And there's nothing good or bad about it. It's just how it comes out in your practice and in the communities that you're involved in. Uh, because of the influences of the communities you've been involved in, Dr. Butler, you're going to have certain influences that I won't have. I didn't grow up with a lot of ATR folks around me. I grew up with a majority uh, uh, mixed population between uh, Arabs and Catholics, Protestants, and a couple of Hindu folks. And getting to know these people in my community had an had a impact on my own practice as I became a polytheist but your milieu of who your community involves is going to affect how your outward expression manifests. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing about just being human is that the communities we're embedded in impacts our practice because we're not disconnected. Um, and to your original question, you know, how do you vet sources? I think to a certain degree, uh, my, my brother Jim Two Snakes here has an answer, which uh, is in the form of a PDF he put together called uh, Spiritual Accounting. And uh, I'll let him talk about it, but uh, for the spiritual specialists in our community, a lot of us have had to sometimes build up our own tools with our gods, ancestors, and spirits because 
we're still in the middle of a revival and we, we have needs that need to be met. So we're looking to our gods, ancestors, and spirits going, okay, folks, now what? <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't have rites of passage. Cool. Well, we need them clearly because uh, I've got two kids and they're going to, especially one of them is going to need one soon. Okay. So what do we do? And, mm-hmm. you know, this is where having a powerful relationship with your gods is a really important part of the practice. And myself, I'm a spiritual uh, specialist within the heathen community. I'm a Gothi, which is a chief of a small kindred. And I'm also a spirit worker. So uh, a lot of my job is facilitating these kinds of things for other people. Well, other people includes my family. And so uh, as spiritual practitioners come forward in our traditions, I think that we're going to see a lot of aspects of the culture that were lost because the, the original the, the poetic edits tell us x y and z things about our gods x y and z snippets about the culture but not how to live as modern heathens mm-hmm. that's more or less something we have to develop on our own and i think that that's something every polytheist at least as far as the west goes is going to have to figure out for themselves is how they develop that with their their gods and their ancestors and spirits so um, I want to I want to hear about Jim from you the spiritual accounting thing that uh, uh, you know as you know, just mentioned. But before I get there, I want to have a sense of so because of the I guess the relative lack of numbers and structures and um, I guess uh, livingness of some of these traditions that we're we're talking about. Has there been kind of a coming together of all the traditions? So uh, where, you know, you guys are all looks apparently friends, right? You guys are connected, whatever. Is that what happens within the polytheist community um, uh, more and more so because of the need to have a spiritual community together, right? So is it everyone from different traditions comes together and you like, how, how does that work? Because it's interesting to me. I, I, I don't. I don't know because it's a, it's a new new world, right? It's it's a well, it's an old world that's coming back, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, yes, uh, I would I'd love a sense of that. Um, I'll, I'll actually I kind of want to uh, backtrack a little bit to something that Dr. Butler said um, about how Christianity came in and kind of uh, stalled a lot of the evolution of uh, certain areas and cultures and uh, religions. And if they had been allowed to continue to grow from that point to here, they would have evolved into something a lot different than what we actually have our sources for. And so that's that's a lot of the, the, the blockade that I think people are running into and we kind of need to sort of loosen our grip on, you know, because a lot of people are like, return to the old ways and, and, and follow these things, these traditions, this specific mm-hmm. way. And it's like, that that's great and wonderful, but you don't live in a mud hut in the middle of the woods that you built with your bare hands. Right. Okay. You live in a manufactured home that came from a factory three states over that they hauled in on a semi and you're living on borrowed land. So how can you bring your spirituality, your path, your religion into where you're at now? And I think it kind of goes along with uh, the question that you just asked is, are people from other paths kind of coming together and meeting as communities? And for us, I can at least say yes. You know, we, our friends group and our extended friends group, you know, there are many different people that walk many different paths. Um, and we do share and we talk and we kind of help each other, like where our paths are lacking, like what Jim was saying about the ancestor 
worship in the Caro tradition uh, wasn't was just kind of not there. And so he had to borrow from a different tradition and then he kind of shifted it so that it would kind of fit in his tradition, but just slightly, you know, um, with the idea of reminding people this part of the tradition came from here, just so you understand that mm -hmm. this is not fully a part of this tradition. Um, but I think in a way, re reconstructionists kind of have to do that, you know, and you kind of have to look at the world around you and stop thinking so much in the past. While it is important to have that information and that knowledge of how they used to do it, mm -hmm. you also have to bring it into modern times. You know, I know I we have a couple of uh, magicians or chaos, chaos magicians, and then also a few Norse heathenry practitioners who work with electronics. You know, they pray to the spirits of their computers and their phones because all of this stuff, all of it, my microphone, yeah. my, my AirPods, my phone, all of it comes from materials that came from the earth. So how, how can we believe in a way that since it's been processed from the raw materials into this device that I can use to talk to my friend in Texas, mm -hmm. how can we believe that doesn't have a spirit? And then you've also got someone like me who has a weird affinity for machinery I used to work at a, a salvage yard and there was a fork truck there that only I could start in cold winter because I had a relationship with it. You know, so we kind of have to bring those old traditions into modern times and kind of revamp them or reimagine them into something more. Um, but having a wider community of people that you work with that you know you can trust because they do the work with a cap capital W then you can kind of find those resources and fill in the blanks for where you're sort of lacking. And maybe you can offer them in return where they're lacking, you know, help build their foundation in return. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think uh, it's, it's true that being uh, very small and very heterogeneous, very disparate, community um in many ways what it's done is that it's it's created possibly an opening for certain kinds of ideas that perhaps we're in a unique position to think about um because we're not very few of us in uh, uh, communities that are so integral uh, within a single tradition that we can just be focused mm -hmm. on it. You know, I mean, this is why I think th there even is a, a sort of concept uh, being talked about as polytheism as such, you know, because I mean, otherwise people would I think in the natural course of things, really just be talking about what they do mm -hmm. because they'd probably be doing it in such a large and integral community that they wouldn't have to objectify it and speak about it as uh, a discrete religion uh, with a discrete name. And, you know, I, I think that this comes up with regard to a lot of indigenous traditions where you know, people will uh, uh, say that in some sense, it's it's not a religion, mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, 
that's uh, of of course very uh, a very dangerous kind of rhetoric because uh, of course of the consequences that that has politically and for issues of respect and recognition, you know. But I mean, the reason why it comes up is because all these traditions are so integral. They infuse every aspect of everyday life normally. And so, you know, it's, it's true that they're not parcel laws in this sense. And so if you're outside of a community that integral, then in a sense, you have a position where you can actually think about um, you can think about tradition in some different and almost paradoxical ways, um, because you can think about um, a notion of tradition which which would embrace all of these actually very integral traditions, mm -hmm. complete worldviews in themselves. You know, and think about what is a worldview of all of these worldviews, you know, not something that positions itself on top of them and that treats them all as just uh, slivers or, or aspects of itself, but rather a worldview which simply is this multiplicity of worldviews. And that I think that I think is the sort of opportunity that can be seized within what is in many ways, of course, uh, you know, um, uh, the misfortune of, of the, uh, the interruption of all of these integral traditions and the kind of, the kind of atomized situation that so many people find themselves in. You know, they can, they, they're, they're forced to find a sense of, of um, belonging to a cosmos that uh, isn't just imparted to them uh, uh, integrally, but that they have to find for themselves. Right, right. Wow, okay. Uh, Jim, uh, I know you haven't spoken for a minute. Uh, you have some thoughts on, on on what we've just been talking about? Yeah, I, I think to answer your question, the the I think it's vital that we have that kind of integration and in talking amongst each other because I'm very cynical. I mean, as Caitlin said earlier, UPG is so much of what's out there in the community. The cynical part of me says all the lore is this old UPG that was written down. So unless we're talking to each other, we really don't have good avenues for comparison and growth. I can't compare what I'm doing to the Southern Baptist Church down the street. I'm going to have to talk to other practitioners, even if they're on a different tradition, to find out whether what I'm doing is reasonable, whether it's enriching and improving my tradition and what I can pass on to my kids. And even a point that you mentioned earlier, I think it's vital that we have that community because we used to make the, the joke that um, sometimes you're going to climb the mountain and the shaman's going to look at you and say, uh, no, you need the shaman on the next mountain over <laughs> because we're not experts in all things, you know, and my work is very much on the ground in certain respects, like 
I, I, and I don't mean to say that anybody else isn't, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. I am really thankful for intellectuals like Sarenth or Dr. Butler, because you guys are doing work that I can't do. You are the mechanical engineers where I'm the guy that's messing around with the go-kart out in my shed, but we all have things that we're contributing to this overall dynamic that I think is really important. So could you talk about what your, uh, what Sarenth mentioned before, the spiritual counting thing? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the, the Wandering Owl, the, the, the shop that Caitlin referred to earlier, that was my wife and I. We had a small metaphysical shop in a very conservative town, but we used to get a lot of really interesting people from all around the region to stop by and visit. And so we started talking about this process of how do you vet a spiritual experience? And so if I think that I've had a message from Thor, how do I vet that situation. This is personal knowledge. This is unverified personal gnosis. What, what do I do in that situation? So the spiritual counting is kind of a little framework that we worked out. And um, essentially, I think of it as a, a three-legged stool. And so if I've got something that I was doing a meditation and I feel like I've had a message from Thor, then I've got to do steps to kind of verify this. So one step might be to talk to other people that are working with Thor. Hey, does this sound like something that Thor would say? I could talk to academic people and say, is there any sort of verification or support for this in any of the texts? I can go to my specialist that is a specialist in divination and say, can I have some divination on this? I could turn to other spirits that I'm already working with, like my ancestors, because, you know, I know my grandfather's not going to lie to me. Hey, grandfather, was this in my... And then the most important part of the accounting process, why we're calling it that, is because we're keeping very good records, whether that's a journal. I'm actually a big fan of spreadsheets because then I can start to sort out what information I'm getting from that personal gnosis that is more actionable, which I can rely on and trust to a greater degree. Because there's this weird thing too that you figure out that, you know, Thor might be really good at giving me information about one subject matter, but don't ask him about your love life because he's awful at that information. And I think that's the kind of on the ground uh, verification that we need is people that are that are living our polytheistic faiths. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I, you know, I, I, I see so many parallels in what you're saying within like a lot of the, the various Hindu traditions, but I'm, it's our words that we use differently, right? It, it, like, for example, like it, it's if you're if you're looking for marriage or looking for for something like that. You don't worship Hanuman, right? You know, because Hanuman's a bachelor god. So you you would worship, you know, like an, an, another god or Kamadeva or whatever, right? But the difference is like, you know, it, it's we have those like those kind of things of the gods have particular purposes and particular relationships and, and particular connections or or certain areas of existence in which they are supreme, quote unquote. Again, I, I use that very very generally. So you go to them for those things. Like for example, if you have you know within the the, the system of the Navagrahas or nine planets, you know, you have Saturn, Shani, who is considered to be in some cases 
very negative on one's life, but in other cases can be positive and you use another God to mediate the effect of this God or that. It, it's a very, it, it's a complex interplay of, of various energies and, 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 and divinities. But it, it, I do find it fascinating that those things are just prevalent here too, right? And, and I imagine in, I imagine in many polytheistic uh, um, traditions, it's very similar to that there's that interplay between the deities. Well, well, one thing it, that it's I a way of say, addressing. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Butler. I'll, I'll let you go in a second. I was just going to actually reference you and say that's it's it's a, our attempt at referencing those missing gaps and how do we fill in that knowledge, because like for a, a Hindu aspect, you know, Ganesha is associated with transport and vehicles because you see those icons all over the place. But if I was in a a Norse tradition, who do I call on and how do I know if that's getting good results unless I'm keeping track of that? And then, then I can share that knowledge with other people and right. see if our knowledge is congruous. And, and, and uh, that's how we're filling in those gaps. But uh, uh, I was just going to, I was, I was just going to add, add really briefly that, um, you know, I think if, uh, if we look at a, a lot of historical traditions um, and I mean, generally speaking, I, I think to some extent, we find this in all of them, that um, on the one hand, there is the sort of notion that different gods have different areas of responsibility. And we have the sort of notion of a divine division of labor. But on the other hand, what we always find is that people have recourse first to the god or gods that they have the most intense relationship with and the most longstanding ties with. And so, you know, uh, for someone who is the particular devotee of a god, you know, they probably don't see them as the god of X right. or the god of Y. They see them as the god of everything because they're the god to which they have first recourse because they have the most longstanding history with, and they have the most intense kind of personal bond with. And so we always have to balance off these different kinds of aspects because I think that um, I, I like to talk sometimes about kind of center and periphery, you know, and in a polytheistic system, gods who uh, are more peripheral to us will tend to see as the God of X, who we would go to if we needed X. Um, but the gods who are more central for us, we see them in a fuller sense. And that will involve often picking up on um, much more minor aspects of them that also may not come out in the tradition if the tradition isn't preserved in a very full way you know, we may not see that, you know, there may be some minor aspect uh, of a deity that would be relevant. And we would draw on that if we needed help with that, because we would want to get that help from them. And you see, and so that, that's, I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to add that because I think that we need to complexify a little bit the way in which we talk about polytheisms so that we're not always just talking about um, a division of labor. Yeah, so I think, you know, yeah. we go to that because it's such a good, uh, it's well, such a good way. That's a fantastic uh, insight. No, yeah, I, I, that's I, fantastic I, insight. 
Go ahead, Jim. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I wanted to, you know, bounce back and forth there, but you, you're absolutely right. And that's kind of where we came up with the accounting system in the sense that if I discover that a certain spirit or God is working really well for me in a certain area of my life, then that's where we start talking to other people and sharing that. But you are absolutely correct that we cannot compartmentalize them that well. And that's the strength of talking to other practitioners and other polytheists to reflect those, those real life things that are going on with us and how we can apply them. So, I mean, just on the point, Dr. Butler, uh, I would say this, right? Like, so yes, I think you're right about the idea of periphery and, and, and the, the main deity you get to, but there is like, it's like, for example, my tradition, I belong to the Sri Vaishnava tradition, which is, you know, worshippers of Vishnu and, and that entire pantheon that connected with it. So part of that would be like, you know, if my, my character is much more martial, I'm, I'm much more of a, uh, a fighter kind of like, I, I can be quick to temper. I have these characteristics. So instead of if I go talk to someone within my tradition, they'd be like, worship this form of Vishnu, right? Narasimha, or this form of Lakshmi, or this form of one of their attendants, you know? So it's not to say that they, these, these divinities are, you know, siloed to their, their duties, but that these forms and these, these uh, not just forms, but these names, these these particularizations of that deity have particular abilities that are much more aligned to human uh, human elements, right? So because because we're body embodied human beings, our minds are built a certain way within a cultural context. When you see something like a lion, or you you get the sense of curiosity, versus if you see something like a child, you have a different kind of uh, 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 interaction with it. Even though it's the same deity in all these different forms, but that deity has its own personality, that own. Uh, connection so in, in that sense like i mean from from the hindu perspective at least partially hindu perspective all deities fall into that it's a particularization of that one all-encompassing energy but i don't want to get into the theology of this all because that's too much but i mean i would just say it's, it's not compartmentalization it's just you know I, 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 well, I yeah, guess, this yeah. is what i'm saying is that this is this is something that we recognize yeah. in hinduism this was also present in other historical polytheistic traditions we don't necessarily see that as well though because yeah, i don't want to impose it because I, which, yeah yeah i, I don't want to impose that on those yeah those those traditions are present to us the way that they've been preserved we get a certain kind of picture like for instance you know we look at hellenic polytheism through the lens of homer you know who, who you know, gives a certain kind of picture where he brings together a pantheon and they all have very uh, strictly delimited roles yeah. and you know, they're, they're in this kind of tightly integrated system. Whereas of course, you know, for someone living in ancient Greece, the picture would be a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, they would know the religion not primarily through Homer and that kind of picture, they would know it through the, 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 the worship that they've been introduced to in the home, in the local temple, in the festivals that were particularly important in their area, you know. And I mean, of course, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't, that there isn't uh, uh, some kind of a validity to the patterns of activity that, that gods have demonstrated, you know, the aspects that they've shown to their worshipers, uh, you know. And the historical record retains this, you know? And so, I mean, 
there is something that people have consistently experienced, you know, with these gods. Right. Um, you know, just as we experience uh, human beings have, you know, certain kinds of patterns there, you know, there's certain kind of a nature that we expect from them. But we also realize that there's more to them than we ever That's right. see and that they uh, uh, also have the capacity to surprise us and to act independently of how we expect them to or what they've done in the past. You know, we recognize them as agents. Right. It's like the idea of you see your parents as your parents. You don't see your parents as a friend or a son or or whatever. You know, Uh, that's what they show you, right? For for a large part of your existence. So yeah, that makes total sense, right? The the gods are much more than we we see of them, or uh, our relation with them. They're much much wider than that. So absolutely on point. Um, So uh, we're getting in like an hour and a half, guys. What? What any topics do you guys think that you know I might have missed that, or any ideas that we, you know, um, we should discuss? We've touched quite a bit, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I think uh, one thing that can't be left out of modern polytheist discourse is uh, the role of magic in how a lot of us exercise power as polytheists in our daily life. Yeah, could you explain uh, that? Because I, I think most of, most people listening don't, when they think about magic, they think it's like this, uh, you know, obviously either the sleight of hand nonsense or mm-hmm. like some Harry Potter stuff. Uh, so if you want to like, <laughs> no, I, I mean. No, 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 I wish I could just conjure lightning out right. of my hands. That would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, so what magic is and so i'm going to relate this to a couple of different uh concepts such as chi prana mana um in our tradition we call it ond or uh the breath because a lot of the it follows a lot of the similar concepts with how the working with breath affects reality working with your inner spark it then becomes outwardly manifested in various forms uh which is why spiritual discipline is an important part of actually working with magic because it's not just hi i want to think and grow rich it's there are steps i have to do to get there mm-hmm. but magic is important to the modern pagan and polytheist movements in part because of its origins in the 1950s and 60s with the rise of wicca but also because these are roots to power that we are reviving within our polytheist traditions as well you might hear myself or caitlin say something like say there and that is a particular form of magic that is often translated to witchcraft. And it does incorporate aspects of witchcraft, but it's not just that on its own. It's complicated. <laughs> but magic uh, is fundamental to how not only we affect the world, but how our gods affect the world. Because uh, Sather came through Freya, a mm-hmm. goddess, uh, one of the many goddesses we have. Uh, through her hands, and she taught it to various beings, including other gods and to us. And so uh, there are various gods who use different forms of magic, shape-shifting, projection of consciousness. A lot of the things that you'll see modern pagans and heathens work with, we are either taught by our gods or as taught of our traditions. So what is magic? Magic is affecting the world around you in a number of ways. For instance, if I want to say, get this job, I really, I need a job. Well, I can't just say I need a job because 
I can throw up my application all these different places and maybe one place will get back with me, but it's not enough to live on. Okay, so you got to actually focus in on what it is you need and then do correct actions. Uh, in, in heathen magical work, a lot of that is also spiritually inclined. So you're going to work with, say, in my case, the runes themselves mm -hmm. are spirits. So you're allying with spirits to affect change in the world. Um, the, the, I could get into the runes, but it's a whole other topic. Long story short, when working with the spirits, with your own spiritual energies, you are activating channels of influence and working with, not against, the natural order of the universe. So when people say, oh, magic supernatural, I'm like, no, no, no. If magic was supernatural, I could get myself a billion dollars by and I wouldn't have to worry about getting a damn job in the first place. No, you have to work with the natural order because all these energies follow along normal currents of operation. Uh, I can't just flick a light switch on and a million dollars pops out of thin air. You know, I have to get online. I have to fill out the application. I have to do all the necessary physical work. And what magic does is work to bring influence into the situation through all these subtle uh, frames, if you will. Um, so I might say, make offerings to the gods that I worship on the normal. And if there's a particular god associated with this particular job, I'll go make an offering. Like, let's say I want a construction job really bad, looks great, cool. I'm going to go talk to Thor and ask him for help with that. But I'm also in my own personal life, I'm going to say, light a green candle, maybe I'll make offerings of certain herbs that have money influence on them. Uh, and then I will then, I will cast my spell by saying a couple of words, breathing on the candle, perhaps. So the, the mechanics of how you do it matter. But long story short is that it's an expression of your personal will into the universe and your universe reciprocates so long as you have the proper channel set up and you've done the proper offerings and the proper work to make it happen. And if it chooses, Magic right? Is, if it chooses. Yeah. You know, because you know, the thing about having a spiritual world full of gods and ancestors yeah. and spirits is that part of the reason you're doing all this extra work on top of just saying, I want this job is because those relationships will look kinder on you if you have positive, good relations. So, and it's not just a, oh, can I get this advantage? It's, if you want me to be able to give you better offerings, I need to have a job that facilitates that. I give so you give, and you give so I can give. And so I am living in good reciprocity with my gods, my ancestors, my spirits, right. and myself. So, and it's, it's, I can't click my hands and capitalism goes away and I get whatever I want because that's not what magic is. That's wish fulfillment and it's bullshit. <laughs> it's funny because it reminds me of uh, of the Gita when Krishna says, you know, if you were to, you know, eat food without offering to the gods, you are considered a thief, right? This idea of the, re the reciprocal nature of the deities and human existence because, you know, through the gods, rains come, through the gods, the earth, earth is bountiful, we take from it, and yet we don't want to return back to it, right? It's just, mm -hmm. so this idea is, is very built in and it goes back to your earlier point about capitalism we just take from the earth we take from all things around us without any sense of of we're in this relationship together right exactly and so magic is a particular opening and a focus in that relationship so if we understand ourselves as spiritually interconnected yeah. and uh you can't use magic to compel 
there's nothing saying you can't do that. Like if I have this particular manager who's a dick and is interfering with my livelihood, yes, I can use magic to say, all right, that's enough of that. You're threatening my livelihood. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with the cosmological order of me saying, uh, stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm using very on the ground examples, but it's also, you can work with magic to uh, seek enlightenment or to seek knowledge or to seek an understanding right. of yourself as much as you can to seek material gain. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a practice that is widely applicable and available to everybody. And just like anything else that we've talked on this show about what matters isn't so much of whether or not you can access it. It's your expertise with yeah. being able to work with it. Um, you know, a, a competent bhakti worshiper can not only explain the process of engaging in bhakti, but they can also talk about their God in a way that you can understand. Right. Absolutely. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, like uh, what you're saying about magic connects. I mean, you used the word prana earlier. Part of it's prana. There's other terms, sankalpa. There's a bunch of, you know, it reminds me a lot of what, what, we, what they do in what's called, um, you know, within the, the Vedic tradition, there is the regular tradition and then what's known as abhichara, which is left-handed path, right? Right-handed path, left-handed path. And mm -hmm. the left-handed path is, is more what they call black magic. Well, I mean, we call it now, we call it that now, but it's not, it just means left-handed. Right. Um, and then there's the right-handed path, which is the mantras and all these practices that go to, to achieve the ends of the world, right? You know, of the, the proper fulfillment of things in nature um, as they flow, like, you know, your, your will goes out into the world to influence it. You do these practices, you do these mantras, you do these, these, all this stuff, right? It's just, yep. it, it's a living pulsating universe where it's not just this dry mechanical, I hit this, this happens. It's, it's just like, yeah, ebb and flow. Absolutely. And the, the power of magic is, it is not tethered necessarily to, uh, this is the only correct way to do this. It yeah. is, you can do stuff that is abrogating of the normal natural thing and you can get a, a, radically powerful result from it you just have to be willing to deal with the, the fall consequences yeah yeah Always. and i think that that's also reflected in a lot of left-hand paths uh yeah. practices if i remember correctly yeah um so yeah magic uh takes on a lot of different characteristics and it depends on where you focus it you know my rune magic is different from sather my uh working with with voice and song is going to necessarily be different and what i'm going to apply it to uh might manifest in different ways depending on who i'm working with yeah, yeah, root magic reminds me so much of like bijas and matras. If you if you know if you learned anything about that, uh, oh, I, I, very I, little bit. <laughs> I'm sure there's parallels. I mean, there are obviously differences, but it's it's it just sounds really very similar in terms of of the of those tantric elements. So, um, I mean, yeah, I actually having worked with both uh, mantras and runes, I I can verify that the the work and the energy exchange is very similar between the two, although very unique to yeah. each tradition. But the the energetic exchange that happens from either saying a mantra or uh, goldering the the runes, you know, speaking their names and bringing that energy into you, they're very similar um, within traditions, you know. It, it, it's interesting to me that the runes exist as, a, a, I mean, it, as a written thing, as opposed to like in the written, I mean, within the, the Tantra traditions, there's like the Bija mantras or where point, the, the words don't mean anything, like cream, clean, you, you say these words, they have no linguistic meaning, but there's power 
in, invested in that sound, right? So it's it's very, I, I find it the, the parallel to be really fascinating. Uh, even though I, I think so much of Norse culture was very oral, but they have this uniquely written rune system. And then there's much of the Vedic culture was oral too, but it's all like much more of like the, the oral, uh, the vocal system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is why um, Sorry, there, uh, there was um, in, um, in a, a text from late antiquity uh, uh, by uh, the Platonic philosopher Iamblichus, which uh, was very influential in its day, uh, uh, called On the Mysteries. Um, he, uh, at one point, stresses the importance of uh, not translating what he calls, uh, 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 well, I mean, he uses, he uses a different term, but what are often known within the subsequent tradition as the so-called barbarous names. Um, in other words, what he means is the foreign names mm -hmm. uh, that are within a tradition. And he's giving, in a sense, just very practical advice. He's saying, uh, if you're working with uh, uh, some, some tradition that is in a language other than yours, don't translate the names because they have a power in and of themselves and you'll lose that if you translate them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, they're not, the, you, you, don't, you don't just get the effect from them by interpreting the meaning the way that you would with a mundane text the the sound is also integral to them and also their function as proper names is integral to them as well and so you get this discourse about the limitations of translation because you're recognizing the force of all of these other aspects no that's that's so true you know like um yeah i i i think the idea of not translating certain words and sounds is very important, especially within a, a ritualized and, and uh, context. It's you have to maintain those traditions. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I also kind of want to add to what uh, Sarent was talking about and incorporate what Dr. Butler just spoke on. Um, magic also looks very differently from individual to individual when it's in when it's in a community based setting, you know, you'll have the ritual leader who will create the ritual and everybody will kind of follow along and you'll have songs that you sing maybe there's drumming um, cleansing and, and then you do the ritual and then you come out of it and there's uh, steps to that as well, mm -hmm. but when like for when I'm doing uh, my own individual magic, I actually look to the teachings of Tai Chi, which oh. I was uh, trained in in 24 form Yang style Tai Chi years ago. And then I did a lot of my own uh, reading up on it. And the way the wheel works in Tai Chi is when you're moving forward through the poses, you're actually building or constructing the wheel. And then when you move backwards, you're destructing and pulling it apart based off of how the elements are set in the wheel of Tai Chi. Um, and it's way more in depth than that little tiny snippet of explanation that I gave to it. But like when I am trying to do a certain form of magic, like say I want to bring a specific type of growth within my life. Like I, I'm an author, I'm an aspiring author, I guess. Um, if I want to manifest a, uh, say a book deal, I will take 
uh, certain things like I want this part of my passion to grow. So I will take roots from a tree that I have a relationship with. I will take a seed and I will take uh, some dirt in some water and I will put it together. And if I want it to like really jumpstart and go into it and like really like fly down the path, I will toss it into a river that goes over a waterfall while leaving offerings for the waterfall to carry that energy and that intention down. But while I'm building this bundle or satchel or whatever, I will actually do yoga and I will use the prana, the energy that I uh, build during that, always returning my intention back to bringing this book deal back to me. And I will release it into that bundle, helping like offering my own energy and offering my own understanding of what I want and really trying to pinpoint what that is, you know? So to everybody, magic looks differently, whether yeah. it's changing something inside yourself in order to achieve a goal or it's throwing something out into the universe and going, I hope it sticks. Right. Um, so you have the external magic, but you also have to do the internal magic as well, because I, as a kid, um, and I, I love my mother dearly, she is a wonderful person, but she was a very worried mother and a very cautious and uh, sort of controlling in her own ways, but that's through no fault of her own. Her mother was that way. And so she, fell victim to it and passed it along to her children. And so as one of her children within the ancestral line, I had to break that within myself. I had been dreaming of being a writer since I was like five, but all throughout my life, I kept telling myself, oh, I'm not good enough, or I can't do that. And I have all this stuff. And so I had to do a lot of internal magic within my own mind and my own psyche to actually counter a lot of that, to kind of bring it forth and be like, no, I can do that that's bullshit. I can do that. Right. And then I had to do that sort of magic in a way to create those thoughts, to manifest that within myself in order for the universe to hear me and to bring my vibrations up to meet what the universe had to offer me. Absolutely. And so magic takes a lot of different forms. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just, you know, again, for, for listeners and people watching, I just want to make sure, again, we're talking about magic within the traditional setting not in the context of what you read in swords and sorcery books it's not that and we're, right we're not playing magic the gathering yeah, or dungeons right. and dragons <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's a very it's a much more it's a deep practice of engaging with oneself and the universe around you so um and so another I, thing yeah. to know about magic is it's not instantaneous too you know oh, yeah. it takes a lot of time to manifest you know it, it may take months or even years sometimes so it's just a, a patience thing absolutely um all right we hit in two hours jim you were gone for a little bit you got anything what you want to throw in here no i'm good i was just kind of stretching a little bit with the camera off <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great um all right guys i've, I've really enjoyed this conversation guys and, and ladies sorry um uh, enjoyed this conversation deeply um i learned so much and you know it's, it's great to connect with people that you know are not part of the the dominant uh hegemony going on and are really trying to connect to the traditions that brought us to this place in, in so many ways of our, our of our spiritual growth like even if you think a lot about what's within christianity or islam and there there are these polytheistic ancient traditions that have been been remassed in some way but those threads are still there 
um, and there's divinity that's at play. So, you know, I'd love, I'm enjoying this, I love the conversation. It's great to meet you all. I want you guys to like, you know, whatever you, whatever else you guys want to say to, to, you know, and the last few thoughts on this podcast, I, w- I want to do some more stuff with you guys down the line. Cause I think it's really interesting, maybe individual traditions at a time. Cause I think we can get a little more from that, but this is a great primer for people that are truly trying to understand the polytheistic world and what that looks like when, if you're not like, a Hindu or, uh, you know, uh, from Southeast Asia or, you know, these places are where the traditions are a little more living than they are in, you know, in, in, in your guys' traditions as for, for a couple hundred years. So yeah, please take the floor, anybody. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I, I just want to throw out there that this was a fantastic conversation. From my perspective, what I enjoyed about this the most is we all seem to be in agreement that modern polytheism is a lived and growing faith. And so make sure that if you are a person who is living that faith, that it reflects in the life around you and strive to make your connection better, not only with the gods and the spirits, but with your community, with your family, with your ancestors. And through that, we were all going to have a better future, filling in those gaps that were left behind and, and just creating a much more dynamic and better future for those that come after us. I also wanted to say thank you for inviting us on this show. It has been wonderful speaking with both of you in in seeing sort of the academic perspective of polytheism and how everything just kind of like a cog fits together beautifully. Um, Arguably, I think both of our paths are very, very difficult equally in their own rights. Um, And, you know, there is a lot of respect here and I I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to be the bad guy to the listeners here. All the lessons that you learn from your paths, whether it's through studying or through your teachers, make sure you turn that stuff withinward too. You know, you have to support yourself. You have to show yourself love. You have to take care of yourself in order to actively connect with your community in the proper loving manner. You can't run yourself ragged all the time. Take a break, take a breath, relax, and don't feel guilty about it. We all do it. So thank you for listening to us ramble. And um, uh, before Sarenth goes, I would like to mention that we do have a podcast, uh, myself, Sarenth, and Jim Two Snakes. Uh, We're on Around Grandfather Fire. Uh, We're currently on our third season. So if you want to hear more from our crazy kooky selves, uh, you can find us on Anchor and Spotify and any other platforms that host podcasts. And so I'll feel link free the, to find us. Yeah, I'll link the, the, the podcast to, the, to this podcast and to the YouTube so that people can find you. Um, and if you guys want to send me your buy, like any sort of, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, I'll link it up to so we're connected. Um, so, uh, in, you know, Sarenth and then uh, Dr. Butler. I just, uh, first off, thank you for having us on here, Makunda. This has been a really awesome, and it's, it's nice to finally see you in person, um, <laughs> and also you, Dr. Butler. Um, I think that if, if folks take anything away from, from this, what I want them to take away is from uh, this episode is that these are lived relationships, and there are as many ways as there are grains of sand to engage in them, uh, and what 
any one of us has to say is our own experiences, our own understanding, our own pathway, and that however the gods, ancestors, and the Vaithya or the spirits find you, that's how they find you. And that's just the beginning. Uh, and so anybody that wants to look into the heathen gods, I definitely encourage uh, everybody to just take your time, do your research. If you have questions, hit the people up that are in the community um, and just, yeah, I think that uh, there, these are developing relationships. These are revivals and each of us has to take our own time in our own place to bring these back. And so however long or however short that takes you is that's your journey. And that is a beautiful thing. So uh, tell to the gods, ancestors and the spirits. Dr. Butler. Yeah, well, I'd like to, uh, you know, I'd like to thank you for creating this platform and for every, everybody else for participating. You know, I mean, I always just, I, I love so much just listening to people talk about, you know, the work that they're doing and the experiences that they're having, what they're building, you know, because the way that I see it, you know, theophany, experience of the gods, experience of the divine, if you will. Um, to me, it's a human right. It's something that is as basic to human nature as having, uh, as having an ethics or having um, a culture or a political system or a sexuality, you know? And so what people should take away from this, I think, is that, you know, what you're seeing here is people just taking responsibility for this aspect of their lives and, you know, trying to explore in um, a really open and uh, presuppositionless way uh, this aspect of their lives and trying to bring it forth in the, the terms that it's made itself apparent to them, you see. And so, I mean, that's, I think, what people should take away from this is just this open field of possibility that people are seizing, that people are discovering a conception of religion and of spirituality, which is different in some ways than what has been our sense of these things for the past however many centuries in the West, but that in some sense has just been true all along, that people have encountered these things in the same way that they encounter the features of their natural environment and the features of their inner nature. Um, and just that spirit of exploration that's what I, I think, you know, uh, I always find so rewarding from listening to people talk about their different paths. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to engage in that 
here, you know, in, in this, uh, on this platform. And uh, I'd also like to very much recommend uh, 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 the, the podcast that, uh, that Sarinth has uh, around Grandfather Fire, which uh, it, it's a wonderful podcast. I've listened to it many times myself and uh, extremely informative. And I, I think that people who want to know more about these traditions, uh, really, uh, that, that's a great place for people uh, to start. That's excellent. You know, um, thank you guys for joining and uh, uh, to, to everyone listening, watching. Um, you know, it, it, I would recommend um, you learn more about these traditions, you connect with these people that practice it. Um, you know, part of having an amazing world is a diversity of different ideas, beliefs, and practices, and it behooves us to support, help, and um, learn about them. So to, to, you know, to anyone listening, I would listen to their podcast, check out their work, read more about their various traditions. Um, and if you're, you know, Hindu, you know, I would, you know, it, it's, it's important for us to learn about these deities too, um, various deities, because, you know, we're all connected at some level. Um, and we can find those connections in our practice, in our, in our experiences and uh, our uh, gnosis or gnana, whatever you want to say. Um, <laughs> there's different hundreds of words for knowledge, but uh, thank you guys for listening um, and uh, join us again uh, next time on Mary Media. Thank you, everyone. Yamunatire Gayati Vanamali Gayati Vanamali Madurum Gayati Vanamali